Welcome to Fashion Your Seatbelt, your first class seat to one-on-one conversations with the fashion industry's top voices. I'm Jessica Michaud, and I created this podcast to share the joy I have in getting to know all the amazing people who bring this creative, inventive, and extraordinary business to life. You'll get to hear the cadence of their voices, the sound of their laughter, and feel firsthand how passionate they are about what they do. Also, I just want to remind you to leave a review. Stars are really trending right now, and it helps other very stylish listeners like yourself find the show. Now buckle up, and let's get started. Creative director and stylist Sasha Ledic is a Fashion Month fixture. His distinctive look of a beret and a monocle always makes him easy to spot at a show. You could also always count on Sasha to give you a great soundbite about what he thinks of a presentation. And it's often something that will make you laugh out loud or blush. Maybe it was all those years working alongside his mentor, the iconic photographer Helmut Newton, who was also known not to mince words, that formed Sasha's talent for finding the perfect bon mot. But to be fair, Sasha, who was born in Yugoslavia and grew up in Germany, was always fascinated by the world of fashion and its fundamental transformational properties. By the tender age of 16, he was already working as a hairdresser and makeup artist before finally getting his first break as a stylist. And once he did, he never looked back. Sasha became the fashion and creative director of the influential 90s era Spoon magazine before moving on to become the editor-in-chief of Above magazine, which he launched in 2004 and sold for a pretty penny right at the height of excess before the global recession of 2008. And since then, he has been using his talents on all sorts of different fashion fronts as a stylist, a fashion consultant, a creative director, you name it, if it has to do with fashion and creativity, Sasha is your man. This is a claim that is backed up by a laundry list of publications, photographers, and celebrities that he's worked with over the years, which include, but are not limited to, Vogue, GQ, Vanity Fair, Interview, V Magazine, Harper's Bazaar, Esquire, Glamour, L'Officiel, and Grazia. And besides his longtime collaboration with Newton, Sasha has also teamed up with other leading fashion photographers like Ellen Von Onworth, Norman Jean Roy, and William Klein, and I could go on. His visual eye has transformed everyone from Lana Del Rey, Jessica Chastain, Sienna Miller, Rihanna, Lily James, Diane Kruger, Kira Knightley, Lea Seydoux, and I could go on and on. So let's just say that Sasha has quite a lot of great fashion stories to tell, which is why I wanted to jump on a Zoom call with him for this podcast to tell us all about his extraordinary life lived to the fullest in fashion. Sasha, I mean, we've known each other for years, and yet we have never actually had a sit down, hang out. We always see each other at the shows. We're running from one thing to the other. So I'm so excited to finally do a podcast with you. So thank you so much. Well, thank you for having me. All right. So I want to kind of hear your whole origin story. So I want to know, can you take me back to the beginning? Because I know when I was growing up, I never knew about this. I mean, I knew about fashion journalism, but, you know, being a stylist or being fashion director, those things were like concepts that were not put forward into the world. How did you first discover fashion and, and, and that field? I think it started out when I was a child because I um, emigrated to the West when I was about seven or eight years old. I hadn't seen a fashion magazine before that because I was born in Yugoslavia a long time ago. So, you know, it was still a dictatorship under a politician called Tito. And I was smuggled out of the country back in the day because my parents were made to leave the country before because usually when somebody wasn't very liked by the system, they were sort of eliminated from the country. And that's what happened to my parents. My brother and I were raised by my grandmother. And only at the age of seven, we were smuggled out of the country 
via Hungary into Austria. And then in Austria, we met these two people that were our parents that then took us to Germany. Oh my God. So how long were you separated from your parents when you were young? Until I was seven. So from what age till you, before you were walking till seven? Well, um, basically I think my parents had to leave when I was about, or they basically were deported more or less when I was two or three years old. Oh my God. What, that, that has got to be a huge impact on your psyche as you're growing up to discover your parents at the age of seven. You have to be nuts to end up in fashion. <laughs> you have to be a little bit nuts. That's true. That's true. So you Landing where when you met with your parents? You landed in what country? I landed in uh, Germany basically. We were smuggled over the border up to Austria via Hungary and then we drove to Germany where we then ended up or where they lived and where we settled down. And that's and so at seven you saw fashion magazines, you said that's what I want to do. I mean, how did what was the progression? Well, I was introduced to, you know, schooling in Germany is very, very far advanced. So we were raised straight away. I mean, you know, I already, I got there, I didn't speak the language to begin with. You know, I only spoke Russian and um, sober Croatian. I didn't speak any German. I didn't speak any English or anything. And when I was put into school there, in primary school, I didn't know they would start bilingual already. So I already started learning English and German at the same time. And then at the age of 10, they added French. And so, you know, by, by the age of 12, I spoke five languages. Oh my God. I'm going to tell my kids to stop complaining about having to just learn one extra language. <laughs> yeah. And that's when you are introduced more or less to the fine arts. And um, we started out, you know, learning through classical music, through classical painting, but it was a very, very advanced school. So I also learned about Dadaism, Surrealism, and then, you know, things like Dali popped up, Picasso popped up and all of that. And then all of a sudden came the fashion things in there as well, you know, collaborations between Cocteau and Chanel, um, Schiaparelli and Dali, you know, and all of that. And like, who is Schiaparelli? Who is, you know, and funny enough, that's how I was, you know, first sort of heard the first glimpse of fashion. Of course, discovering television and seeing all these Hollywood movies and all of that. And then I was like, I'm liking this. I'm loving all the, you know, Esther Williams, blah, blah, blah situationism. Then at one point, um, you just sort of decide, okay, by the age of 14, 15, I was like, I want to be a fashion designer. Wow. But, you know, we're talking the late 70s, early 80s. Fashion schools were very rare and extremely expensive. And you're an immigrant child of parents who work in factories, you know, in the daytime and do cleaning jobs at night. Mm -hmm. So you have to find a way out of there. And you want to be in fashion regardless. So I trained as a hairdresser at the age of 15. Okay. So hairdresser to kind of get you on your path. Because, yeah, you didn't have any context within the fashion world. There isn't, no. It isn't like today where you can DM a director at a fashion school or whatever. There was a real challenge. You really had to want it. But so then so you trained to be a, a, a hairstylist. And then so what was your big break, let's say, where you moved from that aspect into more the field that you wanted, which was styling first, fashion direction? I basically became first a salon hairdresser, left home at the age of 15 and a half to move to London and started working with Dal Sassoon's and then learned to be a real, you know, studio hairdresser there. And my big break was, I would say, bumping into an agent who then basically said, you have to come to Paris and I wanted to be a session hairdresser and makeup artist. I bumped into an agent, her name was Carole. The agency was called Carole. We're talking, you know, late 80s, early 90s. 
and you started working with people like Terry Mugler and Jean-Paul Gaultier and all of that. And at the same time, it didn't make very much money back then, you know. Fashion was, you know, a broke-ass business. You had to make money on the side. And, you know, I was working in nightclubs. I worked at Le Palace, I worked at Le Bain Douche, I worked at, you know, things like Folies Pigalle. That's where I met my partner back then who was a barman at Folly's Pigal, but at the same time, he was a fashion designer for Dorothy Peace. Okay, okay, and, okay, uh, oh my God. David Guetta was the DJ at the Folly's Pigal back then. And Frank, who owns um, La Belle Epoque, was the um, chef de rang. He was looking after the table. So, you know, it was one gang. And David Guetta's wife was looking after the bandouche um, waiting section downstairs. So it all intertwined. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so when, when, so you met all of these great people, you moved to Paris, you're, you're building your band fashion brothers and sisters. How did you, well, first of all, did you always have this look with the monocle and the beret or was this a, had this come later in life? No, no, the, this is the classic look, you know, sort of the look before was very, you know, new romantic, very fashion-y, I mean, ginormous hair, lots of hairspray, tons of makeup, ruffles, you know. I was always quite an eccentric creature to mm -hmm. begin with. And then coming to Paris, working in the Palace and all that, it all went very leathery, very S&M, very, you know, sort of Peter Marino kind of thing in the 90s. And then it moved on um, through being a hairdresser and a makeup artist. You have to sort of also tone it down because I was working with Gianni Franco Ferre and Dior, you know, things like that. So you can't come up, you know, looking like a leatherette or something yeah. that came right out of a music television pop video back in the days. <laughs> and yeah, and then um, one day, my agent, this woman, Carole, she got me a job um, where I had to go to Strasbourg because um, this German company, Mercedes, did a joint venture with these Swiss watchmakers, Swatch. And um, we had to go all the way to Strasbourg. She's like, you're taking the train to Strasbourg. There's going to be some Gertrude who's going to pick you up. She's going to introduce you to Waltraud and Waltraud's going to take you to Hans and Hans is going to introduce the photographer Helmut and the model Yvonne and blah, blah. I'm like, okay, great, no problem. Went there um, with my hair and makeup kit um yeah there was Gertrude there was Waltraud there was Hans there was the model Yvonne who was insane because she was this like six foot two blonde physical divine creature with green eyes and I'm like okay that's your model so I just started preparing her then the girlfriend came in this older man and he's like so what you're gonna do and I'm like well I'm just gonna you know just leave her hair like it is and I'm just gonna do a little bit to her eyebrows and I don't want any mascara because her eyes are so green and blah blah he's like that is a very good idea so you know I like what you're thinking and just do her toenails and her fingernails really red and I'll be a happy man I'm like okay great and then I look at the man I'm like hey we know each other don't we and the man says to me no I've never seen you before in my life and I'm like, of course, I'm sure we met before. You look really familiar. I'm like, I'm Sasha, Sasha Lily. And he's like, yeah, and I'm Helmut, Helmut Newton. <laughs> and I'm just like, okay. <laughs> I mean, I nearly broke my waters at that point, but you know, I'm like, okay, wow, I'm working with bloody Helmut Newton. And um, yeah, we got along really well on that day, on that shoot. And then Helmut is like, I want to work with you from now on and forever kind of thing. And so I ended up working with Helmut. I spent my entire time between Paris and Monte Carlo flying back and forth. And Helmut hated fashion editors. Really? Yeah. Why? He liked, he liked journalists, he liked editors, but he hated fashion people. Really? 
Wow. Yeah, because it was all about the clothes to them. And he liked somebody who was about the picture and who would listen to him and who would accept his concept and all of that. And so he was, at one point, I remember he was on the telephone with American Vanity Fair and I was in his house in Monaco and um, they wanted to do a shoot with Charlotte Rampling. And I don't know what happened, but it kicked off on that phone that I left the office, closed the door. I was outside with his wife. You could still hear him scream. Wow. And then and when he opens the door and he's like, Sasha, you can do up a zipper of a dress. I'm like, of course I can. You know? and he's like, good. So just send us a box with the clothes. We do it ourselves. <laughs> so that's how I became a stylist. Helmut Newton falling out with some American Vanity Fair and telling me that I'll be dressing Charlotte Rampling for a shoot for American Vanity Fair. Oh my God. And that was my first that job. The best origin story of all time, I think. That is amazing. That's amazing. <laughs> so so tell me then how, so you started styling with him. You were kind of his go-to guy for uh, styling and for hair and makeup, I guess. And then how did that pivot into, I think you started working at, was it you were the fashion director and creative director of Spoon? So can Absolutely. you uh, how did that all come about? Well, that came about weirdly enough because the lady that ran Spoon magazine, um, she was American. And so she looked at American Vanity Fair a lot. She looked a lot at American Vogue, French Vogue, blah. And my work was all over that stuff. And Italian Vogue, of course, tons, because I did Italian Vogue with Helmut Newton every four weeks. So it was just, you know, piling up and up and up. And I think the lady was using that as a reference. And also the photographers that worked for Spoon magazine, especially Steve Hyatt back in the day, who was very closely associated with the published, uh, with the editors-in-chief of Spoon. He was part of that because he was the um, art director of Spoon magazine. He started it out with these two young kids, Karine and, um, oh, I forgot his name, but they were lovely, lovely guys. They were from um, a Caribbean island, Madagascar or something. And uh, they launched this gorgeous square magazine. And then at one point they asked me if I would do something with Steve for it. So I did the very first issue of Spoon magazine with Steve Hyatt doing the cover story with these two guys styling it and me doing hair and makeup and directing around with them. Then at one point, I think the owner must have fallen out with them, the publisher, and these two disappeared. And she's like, Sasha, why don't you take over the magazine? And I'm like, John, never done this before. Let's do this. So I started doing that while I was still a hair and makeup artist and still freelancing on Vanity Fair, on Vogue, on National and this and that. So I was just doing, um, you know, back in the day, it didn't matter in yeah. the 90s. Yeah. You know, it was just something you did. It was more of an art and less of a commerce. That came later. So, you know, when you're doing all of these different things, what would you say that that experience, because you said you'd never had any kind of training or anything about that, and here you are thrown into the deep end to a certain extent, but I mean, you did have a skill set. What did that time teach you? What did you learn in that experience? Because again, it was kind of slightly outside of your real house being you know, the, the fashion director and, you know, and uh, the creative director of the magazine. What it taught me most is that everybody who takes themselves so terribly important in fashion these days is just winging it. You know, it's a lot of, a lot of them are trying to make you believe, you know, that they make their tea with something else but hot water and it's absolute bullshit. It's, you know, no matter how and what you do, it's like, when I see that today you can go to university to study PR, what a load of rubbish. Some of the best PRs 
from back in the days that still exist today were people that were just very good socially and very professionally in being proactive on request. And that is what a PR is supposed to do. And anything else beyond that is just milking and money making it. I think, you know, anybody can be a good PR, a good fashion stylist. It would be like sending girls to university to become a model. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. It's kind of like fake it till you make it. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so many girls out there that in real life you wouldn't look at twice, but they just catch somebody's eye and he turns them into these you know, silver screen goddesses and photo beauties. That's it, you know, it's not, there's no rule of thumb and there is no way of learning it. And that where our industry is going to struggle one day because we were taken over by a lot of people who want to pragmatize us and who want to put us into this niche of that you could learn what is going on in the industry. The only ones that really learn is the fashion designers that are now called creative directors and whatever glamorous titles you give them. But they learn how to make a dress. They learn how to pattern cut. They learn about fabrics. They learn how to sew on a button, how to put it in a zipper, you know, how to pleat a skirt. And that is something that if you're interested in your business as a stylist, you should try to learn as well, just to know about what you're doing, the fabric you're touching, the way it is constructed, the way it's worn, the posture it has. And the language all of a sudden it gives the human being that wears this outfit visually and so you know it's kind of you go along with it I mean I can make my own dresses if I wanted to today because I really did all the efforts to learn how to do this and spend a lot of time in ateliers with people mm -hmm. and I was never very much interested in the business side of fashion and publishing because there's people for that you know and so I was mostly interested in the creation of it. And I still find it very sad that these poor young fashion designers are being forced to be so marketing driven. Mm -hmm. Because honestly, marketing should be done by marketing people. Fashion should be done by designers. And if they like it, and if the stuff is good, it will sell. Mm -hmm. And if it doesn't sell, it was obviously rubbish. So never mind the marketing. <laughs> Marketing's not gonna make it work if it doesn't work. Tell me a little bit more because I know that Helmet was instrumental in you getting your start, but it sounds like, from what I understand, he was also instrumental in your next career move. I think you you became the, the publisher and the editor-in-chief of Above Magazine, is that right? Absolutely. And, but, but before we go into that, because I want to talk about how he convinced you to move from Spoon to Above, but what is what is that creative relationship like with Helmet? Or with, and specifically him, but then you've also worked with a number of other photographers out there, and, and that it's such a personal relationship. I'm very curious to know what it was like with Helmet and, and how you adjust what you do in, in relationship to when you're doing a shoot with a photographer, etc. It basically, it was extremely influential, as you say, because we developed this very symbiotic um, existence because we had a lot of things in common that were happening, you know, three generations apart because he was nearly 80. I'm only in my, you know, late 20s, 30s. So there's 50 years difference. But he emigrated his country, I emigrated my country. He had to take on, you know, a new life, new identity, new space. Same for me, new life, new identity, new space. Enter the creative industries, you know. I mean, again, 50 years apart. He was born in 1920. So, you know, I was born only 50 years later. And yet, you know, you get to hear all these stories from the 20s, the 30s, the 40s, the 50s. And you get this whole, influence of fashion around it and at the same time 
you are instrumental to him as well, where every time I went down to Monaco, what was on a weekly basis, I would bring back, you know, magazines like Spoon Magazine, Dazed and Confused, um, ID, The Face, all these indie magazines that existed to show him what was going on out there in the real world, because Monaco is such a bubble that, you know, that's where he lived, that was his studio. So- You connected to what was happening in the day, of the day, in the moment. Yeah, absolutely. Because he spent his year in Monaco, only they left to winter in LA. They would spend, they would leave on Christmas Eve and they would stay in Chateau Marmont until end of March, until it got warmer again in the south of France. They would fly back to Monaco. That's a nice so they would live in the, Well, I don't think Helmut particularly liked Los Angeles. He did that for his wife because she was an actress. Mm. She gave up her life and her career to be Mrs. Newton. So in return, he would have loved to hang around LA with all the hookers and chicas and, you know, all of that, listening to cool music and drinking, you know, margaritas. But she was the actress, so she made him go to Los Angeles and photograph all these wonderful actors and actresses for her and hang out, you know, with Howard Hughes and this and that, and, you know, just be friends with, you know, I don't know, I mean, Angelica Houston and this and that, Lauren Bacall. And, you know, so that's what they would spend their winter with. And June loved it. And Helmut, of course, loved it as well. It wasn't as decadent as Miami would have been, but she would make him do all these portraits for, you know, Variety magazine or whatever there was. And he would just shoot away and at the same time network for his wife and she would have this wonderful time there. So I think, you know, give and take situation like in any relationship. And he was also the influence on me in sort of where one point when I said to him, you know, that Spoon magazine was folding at the end because unfortunately the publisher didn't really know the difference between income and revenue. So I think that kind of like took the whole thing into a spin. And, I mean, she was a great creature though. I mean, mad, mad as a hatter, but you know, good on her for the time being and great for her for trying. And uh, yeah, and then I spoke to Helmut about it and I was like, look, it has folded, what shall I do? And he asked me, um, you know, I was asked by German Vogue back then to eventually work as a fashion editor for German Vogue. And I went to meet them. Then I went back to Monaco, told Helmut that I was in Munich meeting this lady. And he looked at me and he's like, well, look, if you want to die poor and frustrated, go and work for Vogue. And I'm like, why is that? And he's like, well, you know, all these people are just about clothes and egos and fashion and blah. But none of them seems really happy to me. Ooh. And he's like, and also, they never last very long. I mean, by that point, we had worked together already for 10 years. And he said to me, look at all these people we work with. They come, they all think they're fabulous, fabulous, fabulous. We do a couple of stories with them for the magazine, but then they're gone and somebody else rocks up being fabulous. And he's like, and you know, my other question is, where do you go once you get fired at Vogue? Very good point. Very good point. Absolutely. Because you've reached the zenith, you know, and that's it after that. You know, I mean, there's an old German saying, everything has an end apart from sausages that have two. But... <laughs> <laughs> so, so, but, you, know, you decided not to go to, to, to Vogue, German Vogue, and, and instead become the publisher and editor-in-chief of Encore? Uh, yeah, because I said to him, well, then I might just launch my own magazine. He's like, yeah, why don't you do it? You know all these crazy people, the Steve Hyatt's, the Terry Richardson's, the blah, this, that. And I was like, yeah, I actually do. And then, you know, I was like, my first point 
call was Ellen van Amworth because I've known Ellen for all these years and we've already worked together, you know, in the 90s. No, no, when she was a model, when she started out photography. And, you know, by that point, I was like, Ellen, why don't we shoot above magazine together and do a cover together and we put Dita von Tees on it. And then, you know, we called up Terry Richardson, who was just working on his book for Tashin. So Terry did a story. Then I called up Jonas Meckers, you know, the filmmaker, who then did a whole montage and selection of clips and you know Sofia Coppola did drawings of us for us and all that and it was all you know it was more of a of a laboratory than anything else really it was very experimental and we did that magazine and it did really well and it was quite surprising to straight away in your first issue to have Jean-Paul Gaultier, Isignaki, blah 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 all these big advertisers straight away that were interested so you're like okay good we got cred let's do this and so we did, and I came out with about a couple of issues, and then straight away after the, I think, sixth issue, seventh issue, we were approached by um, a very wealthy investor who's like, I want to buy it. So what came in really, really handy, because it was 2008 that we signed, early 2008, That's sold it. It was, yeah, it was sold in July, and then, you know, September, the big crisis hit, so I would say, I mean, I remember speaking to Olivier Zam, who said to me, you really had the right business feeling selling there and then. And I'm like, mate, I was a blind chicken that found the grain. That had nothing to do with intuition. I was just lucky. <laughs> so from then on, 2008, you've been, you've been working more in a freelance capacity with, you know, got every magazine under the sun you've been, you've, I think you've shot every, celebrity under the sun as well i think you, you, you mentioned charlotte you mentioned vita you mentioned i mean i think you uh, emma stone to uh god jessica chastain to i mean like the list is like a mile long uh, lily but, james, uh, yeah um, all of them lily james uh, alicia vikander i mean all of them yeah so all of the big stars of today and and uh, uh years gone by as well what um for the young stylists and and you know to be future fashion directors, can you talk about what it's like to work with um, a celebrity when you on a shoot, and are there techniques or, or ways of approaching them? And then I also want to talk after that about how you deal with like more commercial shoots with different companies. But first, how do you approach working yeah. with stars? Try to avoid the publicists as much as you can, I would say, because the stars themselves, the human being like you and me, they're lovely people. They are creatives like you and me, sometimes even more creative than you and me, because some of these kids come up with shit that I'm like, wow, to even think of that and come out with it and hit the big time the way you did, bravo. I mean, you know, it's just insane. And the creative mind you're facing is different to the machine that surrounds them because sometimes they rock up with this whole entourage of people and you really have to pull your way through there. So. Try to be as human and as connecting as you can with the celebrity, but without overstepping the boundaries. You are there, you know, you work with them. They're not your friends. They are your clients and the person you're catering to. And at the same time, don't overpower with your presence because in the end, you will have to put her in front of the photographer or him. That needs to then be directed by the photographer with or without your help to get the image. So if you all of a sudden become their only point of focus, it might be weird during the shoot because if they're in front of the camera, the moment you move, their eyes will start following you and not look at the camera. 
So you have to really measure your impact. It's like whatever happens after the shoot or in between pictures, fine, but never, you know, forget your place as a stylist and as a creative. So the point of call is the camera and the focus point is the artist who will shoot the artist. Mm-hmm. You are part of the artistic process. In sort of, you know, we all cater to the photographer in the end. Even the artist in front of the camera has to satisfy the eye of the photographer who then shows them what he's done and if they're happy together, fine. And part of it is the nails, the makeup, the hair, the clothes, the lighting, the set design, everything. You are just one cog in this whole machine to create a piece of hopefully artistic, you know, outcome. Is there something that you do that helps to build that friendship, relationship, that, that, that you know, em- empathetic relationship with celebrity? Because, you know, they do sometimes have their guard up. I mean, is, do you have a, like yep. a go-to move or, or, or story you tell or something like that to kind of warm things up? First of all, you have to have your mindset in the right place. So when you walk into a room and the person sees you for the first time, they have to read on your face where it says on my face, I can't polish a turd, but I can roll it in glitter. So they know they will look fabulous. And at the same time, show interest in the person, not only in the artist. Don't be starstruck. You know, you go up to them, you know, how do you do? What do you do? Sometimes you just don't know what these people are doing right now. And just show a bit of curiosity in their work in progress and in the way they're functioning. Because I think what you give off is what you get back. If you are expecting a diva, you will get one and she'll hit you hard. And, you know, if you're starstruck, they will feel that. And it is a sign of weakness. That means they can walk all over you. So you have to kind of stand up to the fact that they are an artist and professional in their own right, in their own world. But if you are booked to work with this person, that caliber of an artist, you must be on the same level in your own industry. And that's what you need to make them understand as well, that on a creative level, we come in on the same height and we are facing each other as artists in our own right in the domain of work we do. So you, like for example, Kylie Minogue are a wonderful world famous pop star. I, Sasha Lillick, am a famous fashion stylist. So we've got the fake thing out of the way. Now what do we do, darling? You know, and then it becomes very, very normal and human. I think humanity is super, super important within this, not just the look. And listening as well is quite important because a lot of times they will tell you what they like, what they don't like, and how they feel about things. Because, again, you can make them look wonderful, but when they look in the mirror and go, who dat? Uh And you're like, okay, fuck this one up. Let's change. So, (laughs) you know, you have to be able to assume about um, maybe one of your favorite memories of a, of a shoot that you've done. Do you have one that kind of comes to mind that you're just like, that was a, a highlight? I have a couple of them, a couple of highlights. I mean, one of my highlights recently was probably working with Glenn Close when I did, uh, you know, when she was playing Norma Desmond in Sunset Boulevard on Broadway last year. And we did um, the billboards and the shoots for the New York Times and all that. And, you know, you're like, I don't get starstruck easily, but knowing that Glenn Close is coming did get me a bit nervous. And she was just one of the most gorgeous and beautiful and human beings you've ever met. 
fact that she's tiny, you know, but such a presence. And what was amazing as well is her wisdom and her knowledge of the industry is shockingly good because she would go in, you know, this little gorgeous woman would transform into this character, into Norma Desmond, who got ready for her close up. And uh, then she would look at what the photographer has done. She would let the photographer start shooting. Then she would look at the screen with him together, acknowledging in what he's done, and then show him how she sees Norma happening and give him a small crash course in lighting because she knows her face so well. Hmm. She's like, look, here we have this light. If we move it up there, and I do this, and I go over here and do this. Look at what she turns into. And then when I do that and move this way, she becomes that. And I'm just like standing there thinking, okay, I'm just gonna kneel down in a minute and start praying to you. Because having somebody who is so aware of camera angles and lighting is so rare amongst artists, because a lot of them are on, you know, iPhone level now because of Instagram. So that makes images for them, that's it. But when you have somebody who actually knows camera angles and professional lighting and so on, that is where super professional old school kicks in. And you just sort of think, these people don't care about looking beautiful in the image. That's not the point. She doesn't want a beauty shot. She wants him to show Norma in a way that she thinks Norma looks. So she doesn't even look at herself as Glenn, she was Norma, and she's like, look what she does when she does this with that light. She's talking and about a like, person. That's amazing. That's that amazing. is so pro. Wow, wow. Okay, so let's pivot to the commercial side of things, because that's another thing I think people who um, want to get into the business want to know, like, how do you... Everybody wants money, of course. <laughs> yeah, you need to pay the bills. So you've got the commercial side of things. How do you dampen or tamper or just your creative spirit, the stuff that you were doing on Encore, et cetera, to do these commercial things? Do you just kind of have to bite your tongue and take the check? How, does, how do you find that balance? How do you decide which jobs to take? I'll take anything. <laughs> I don't care. Because the thing is, you know, I never had a fashion ego. You know, I was never Vogue. I was never this. I was never that. I was a fashion stylist. So if one day I'm doing an advertising for Tampax and the next day I'm selling diamonds, I'll do both. I'm fine with that. And I'm, you know, I'll happily sign it as well. I'll assume it. Because I think in this industry, if you decide to do something, you have to take it on all the way and you have to assume it all the way. There's no reason in doing stuff and then, you know, hiding. Like I did Philip Klein's sportswear campaign the other day, who loves a very certain type of women with a certain yes. look. People go, oh, it's vulgar, it's frivolous, it's this, it's that. And I'm like, yeah, but that's exactly what works for him. So, you know, look at the amount of money he makes and the success he's accumulated with his business compared to you. So, you know, just take it as it is. Mm -hmm. And you do these commercials. A lot of them are very, very pleasant to do, actually, because you do work with some creatives that come out of advertising agencies, come up with ideas and layouts, and you do work with massive photographers because these people now, you know, aren't as picky as they used to be in the 80s and 90s anymore. You know, you will have a five-star photographer, photograph a yogurt, a cheap face cream, um, you know, a tissue or whatever, or a car, because um, that, as you said, pays the rent. And, you know, in the end, when the check arrives, it doesn't stink, 
But when you do the job and you say to these people, I will do it, then you do it right or you don't do it at all. Do not think just because you're allowed to play with a bit of Christian Dior, a bit of Louis Vuitton, whatever, that you now are above, I don't know, baby food or instant coffee, because that is the same people or even more money than, you know, a fashion company will make. And if they keep coming back, you will make so much more money in the long run with it. And I think we're past the point of elitism now, because the definition of luxury has lost its value. We had the supermodels back in the day that would only do the campaigns for the super brands. But if we can have, you know, some model modeling Christian Dior one day and then being in a Zara advertising two hours later, where is the elitism in that? Very true. Um, another, another piece of advice I want to ask from you is, I know you've also done a lot of television. You've been on like, you know, America's Next Top Model, the German? It, or I've done the German version, yeah. I've done Project Runway with Claudia Schiffer, the German version. I've done, but also, you know, like media like for CNN, I've done uh, fashion commenting and all that. So, so what, is there any, are there any tips and tricks for being on television and, and you know, being it? Because you do have a persona. How do you manipulate or work with the camera, let's say, when you're in front of the camera as opposed to being behind it? Take it for what it is. I mean, just talk to it the way I'm talking to you right now or the way you talk to yourself in the mirror and behave the way you dance when nobody's watching in your bedroom, you know? So I think it is, if you decide to work in this industry, and I mean, we've seen all of the bloggers and influencers and Insta creatures and even the street stylists, you know, the dress ups as I call them that come to the fashion shows. If you decide to push a look, sell that look, because most of the time when you see them pushing that look, they're not their clothes, they're borrowed from a PR. So sell them at this point, you know, do the job all the way, be the creation you've just made out of yourself. Also in 3D, in, you know, vocal movement and so on. You're not just there to pose. You are also there to sell a lifestyle by the way you look, I think. It's not just about dressing up for a selfie. I think I want you to come to motion. That's why I like stories and Instagram TV now where people just move around because, hey, good, let's see what you have to say. I mean, I wouldn't go all the way to the TikTok level where I want to learn choreography with it, but, you know, just push a look and you'll be fine. And I think to be in front of the camera and working with big production companies and television shows, just try to be yourself. And, you know, all the creature you've created, people like, you know, myself or Catherine Baba or, you know, whoever's out there, Bethany Vernon, Anne, and Anne, they are all normal human beings. But, you know, once we have our attire on, there's a whole attitude that goes with it. So let's do it. Mm -hmm. Oh, and your persona. I like that. I like that. Do you think that, I mean, they talk about how, you know, you're born funny or you're not. Do you think, what do you think as far as being a fashion director or stylist, what kind of character, what kind of person is the best fit for that kind of field? Ooh, that's a good question. What kind of person? Yeah, what kind of person do you think makes a good stylist or fashion director? Do you have to have certain characteristics to, to do yeah, that? You, you have to be slightly autistic. That means you really have to believe what goes on inside your head, your creation, your concept, your thing, and pull it through. Whatever outside influence comes in, trying to change it, do not let them get in. You know, it's sort of, do not let them get that far. I mean, I wouldn't say autism, but slightly Asperger's, you know, you have to not let them break your ideas. So you have to find your way and really, really pull it through all the way. And take into account that not everybody or everything 
is gonna like it or you for it. But don't forget, you're not in this industry to make friends, you're in this industry to do a good job, to create something and eventually pay your bills with it. Mm -hmm. And everything else is a positive and negative side effect. You know, I have a lot of admirations for my colleagues out there that are as well. You know, I always say, if it's not all the way nice, at least make it nicely all the way. Because, you know, you can look at the work of people like Lotta Volkova or Patty Wilson or, you know, any of us. And you just think, wow. And, you know, when I look at what Lotta does, and I've worked with Lotta when she started out in the industry, I do not know how her head functions. And I love the stuff she does. I don't get it all the time, I have to admit as well. But I love that even more. <laughs> I don't understand and it works. I'm like, yes, it's her thing and I can't get my head around it. But I love everything she does. And the same thing with Patty. Patty Wilson to me is a sort of inspiration at times. So I'm just looking at things thinking, man, you know how to push this shit further. <laughs> and, you know, it's all of those things. And also looking back in time, even... I know people like Jenny Capitan, who used to be the editor of French Vogue many moons ago. When I look at her old series, I'm just like, ah, wow, beautiful. I mean, that thought process. And she's still a friend of mine today, Jenny. So, you know, I look at these things and I see the inspiration she can provide me with and the intelligence and the knowledge. And again, the new kids, the old kids, the individuals are so important. So I think if you want to do this business, Try to be yourself as much as you can and don't let, you know, people tell you st to change stuff unless they pay you for it. Then do it. Then change, of course. Let me pivot off of that with this question then. I always like to ask the question to anybody I interview, like, talk to me about a moment in your career where you made a misstep or what, quote unquote a mistake and how you learn from that that moment and how you pivoted or adjusted how you proceeded after that. Oh God, I'm still learning there. <laughs> I mean, it's like, that's a work in progress, the learning thing. I've done many mistakes. I mean, one of the mistakes was doing a shoot for The New Yorker with Helmut Newton and having this model walk out in fishnet tights and Versace sandals and Helmut just looking at her, looking at her feet going, why are her toes not red? And I'm like, uh, what? He's like, a woman's pedicure is the most important thing, you know. What's the point if she's all glorious on top when her feet look like Brussels sprouts? And I'm like, okay, let me just paint them. And he's like, oh, that's gonna take forever. And I'm like, no, because I have and it was Revlon that made a 60-second top-speed nail polish back in the day. <laughs> and I used that nail polish on her, and they were dry in 60 seconds. And it was a mistake because you know, it was what solved it in the end. But of not doing those toes, I mean, I've never, ever, on a shoot, not looked at a model's feet, ever. Even if it was just a beauty shot, the moment she walks in, I want to see the hand and the feet. And if they're not looked after, it's the first thing that gets done. Even if we're just cropping here, I'm like, it's a traumatism of childhood. So I'm like, I want it to be perfect. Never mind the waxing, whatever. Feet and hands first. I think that, you know, from a woman's perspective, I think you do feel that does, it is transformative when your nails are done and your feet are done. You, it does kind of put you in the mood right away. You feel pampered and it, and it moves you along in the process in a nice way. Um, okay, so Sasha, I want to ask you my five generic fashion questions now. I'm super excited to hear what you have to say. 
So first of all, I imagine you've accrued amazing amounts of fashion and, and clothing over your career. What is your most prized possession? I have a vintage Comme des Garçons coat that I've had for 22 years and I'm still wearing and I'm obsessed with it. You, you need to talk with Michelle at it because her exhibition in Frankfurt looks amazing. As soon as we get out of this, um, we have to go and see her uh, exhibition with all of her Comme des Garçons. All right, so my next question is, what piece do you think um, a woman or a man should really spend money on? Not everybody has a lot of money, if there was one item of clothing that they should really spend a lot more money on, what would that be? Oh, that's a good question. I mean, to me is always the right pair of jeans on a man and a woman. You know, the one that makes you look good from behind too. <laughs> and that's something you should really put money into. Because it is, you know, an item that you will wear often, a lot. And it's something that attracts people's eyes very easy. If you wear a formal pair of trousers, you know, people will look at it and then look away again because there's no, not everybody owns formal trousers, but that right pair of jeans, if that fits perfectly and it makes you, you know, your belly look flat and your bum look nice and pert, that's what needs to put money in there. You know, don't just run to any high street chain to buy a cheap pair of jeans because they're only a couple of euros. You know, put a bit, put your back into it for that one. Um, who is your favorite designer, living or dead? Madeleine Vionnet, a woman that was able to take a piece of cloth, cut into it, put three stitches in three different places, and it was a dress that hung perfectly. And I think that admiration for, you know, the master cutter and the sense of proportion still to this day leaves me quite flabbergasted. Yeah, the, the, the exhibition that was done at the Musée de Bordel of her pieces was just one of the most extraordinary exhibitions I've ever seen. Her, her work is stunning. I, I can't understand why you're drawn to her. Yeah. Now, let's talk about something you might not be drawn to. What is one fashion trend you will never follow? Streetwear. Tracksuit streetwear. Ugh, this whole plastic Nike Adidas lifestyle is really nothing, you know, for me. Doesn't work on me. <laughs> Okay, last question is, what do you love most about fashion? I love that it, that it is a beautiful form of escapism and that is the most useless thing that everybody actually likes and wants. This sort of, you know, fashion or luxury in itself, you know, is not a necessity, but it starts there when necessity ends. Mm -hmm. And that's what I love about it. It's a dreamscape. It's something you could escape into up to this day because it combines, you know, the art of dreaming, the arts, the arts and crafts. And, you know, it's just a wonderful way of escapism and dress up. Tasha, this has been so much fun. I want to do, I'm going to invite you out for drinks as soon as possible to thank you for taking the time. It has been such a pleasure to finally get to talk to you. It's really wonderful. Thank you. No, thank you. And I can't wait until we're allowed to take the Eurostar again and each other in Paris over a nice glass of wine. My treat, my treat. Thanks so much, sweetheart. Thank you, Jessica. Have a lovely, lovely afternoon. <laughs> Take care. Don't want to miss an episode of Fashion Your Seatbelt? No problem. Just go to iTunes or wherever you download your podcasts and click on the subscribe button. Then every new episode will drop into your feed automatically. No fuss, no muss. Believe me, I know. I'm Jessica Michaud.